One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that creates musical time capsules using conversation and contemplation. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Hugh Starnes. He was born and raised in Fort Myers, attending Fort Myers High School and working on his family's 7,500-acre ranch while growing up. He attended University of Florida and then the Levins College of Law at UF, graduating in 1964. He then practiced law until his appointment to the 20th Judicial Circuit in 1978. He was well known for his work as a family law judge and became an authority on the cooperative divorce model. He helped found the Florida chapter of the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts and served as the organization's national president. After more than four decades on the bench, Judge Starn stepped down last year, he said, in order to speak out about what he sees as, quote, deep, serious flaws in our society, including systemic racism. That public decision got a lot of attention, both locally and nationally, and he's been on our radar ever since, so we're so pleased to have him in the Three Song Stories chair today. Hey there, Hugh. How are you? Good morning. How are you, Mike? Good morning. Thank you again for doing this. And like I said in the hallway, thank you for being flexible. We had to bump you a day, then we had to bump you an hour. And you were just like, no problem. I'm good. (laughs) Um, So you grew up in Fort Myers. I did. What was the musical background of that life here in Fort Myers as a kid? What was going on? You know, that's funny um, because I would think that would be a difficult one to remember. But now I remember W. MYR, I think it was, was the local radio station, and Brad Lacey, I don't know if you know that name. No, I don't. He was the, uh, he was the announcer. He was twangy. He did all the shows and played the music, and he had one thing that was really humorous. He would start off his show saying, and this is before Vietnam and uh, Good Morn in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He figured he did this himself. Hello, Fort Myers, <laughs> all the people of Fort Myers, and all the shrimp boats at sea. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been AM radio, right? <clears throat> yeah. Wow. Uh, what kind of music was coming out of the radio then? Mostly, well, it would be pop and country. I think he had different programs with that. He, I mean, he was the whole guy. He was there virtually all day. Hmm. <clears throat> what was the music happening around the house? Your folks playing music? Um. Well, my, you know, it's back in the day of the 78s and mm-hmm. 33s. Um, my mother had a lot of uh, records around like uh, I'm in the Mood for Love hmm. was one. Um, Bing Crosby. And uh, what was interesting from my standpoint about that, I was probably 10 years old. My mom would get depressed at times, you know, around the house, and I would notice that, you know, you pick up on that. And when I would do that, I would sneak over to the Victrola, the record player, put on Frank Sinatra, and I'm in the mood for love. I would hear my mom start humming it and singing, and it would pull her out of her depression. That's a good song story. Yeah. (laughs) Did you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have an older sister, Margie uh, Bilotti, Starnes Bilotti, and um, a younger sister, Susie Santa Maria. I have a half-brother and sister. My half-brother, Julian, was a lawyer here for many years, and um, he died a few years ago. My older sister, Hazel, uh, lived in St. Pete, and uh, she was married to uh, William Huff, who had a bond agency there, and she died about a year ago. Mm. Did you uh, get influenced by them as a kid with you know the older brothers or the older siblings uh, in terms of music? Um, well, first, Julian was my idol. He was older. He went, wound up going to the Korean War and got injured there and came back. I have no memories of music. Hmm. My sister, Hazel, was in a trio. Uh, she went to Fort Myers. Both of them went to Fort Myers Junior High and then Senior High. We lived on Royal Palm Avenue. On one end of it, on 2nd Street, 
was the junior high, the old red building. On the other end at Thompson Street was a yellow brick building, which was the senior high. And uh, Hazel was in a trio with two other women, uh, girls, and they actually recorded some things. The one in particular, I remember it was um, that time when the kind of the jazzy songs, they just kind of do the gibberish with it. And it was me, I, my, oh, bitty, bye, be, you, boo, bitty, bye, bo, boo. And um, they sung that and it was a great trio. And um, and we we had the recording of that for quite some time. I'm not sure what happened to it. So when you went to Fort Myers High, where was it? Well, when I went to okay, Fort Myers so High, it was out at the current location, it had moved to the current senior location. high, right. and it was junior senior high then. But at at the time they went, uh, like I say, there was junior high yeah, yeah, and yeah. senior high, each within a half a block of where we live. Also from where we lived um, was Gwen Institute. Right. Red brick building. That's where I went to elementary school through the fifth grade. So you went to neighborhood schools. Right. (laughs) And it was even beyond that. When my mom would go grocery shopping, she would walk down to where the first federal building is now. And there was a table supply food store. And she would bring back uh, two armloads of groceries. And that's how to our house on foot. And, And my dad would go over and across the street to the south or west of uh, of the Franklin Arms Hotel mm-hmm. was his was his office, a little alleyway and then up to the second story. So he would walk to work. So everybody in the family for those years got walked, a lot of steps. Walked to school, <laughs> walked to work, walked for shopping. Um, when you were at Fort Myers High School, what was the musical scene like? What was you know, what was the popular music during that time during your years as a greenie? Elvis Presley yeah. was just starting the Platters and the Great Pretender came along in that era. A lot of uh, country music, of course. I, Eddie Arnold, when I was a little kid, he actually came to the Arcade Theater. I guess that gives you a sampling sure. of the genre and the time. What was the first uh, musical act or musician or band that you like became something that you identified with and that you liked? Uh, in those years. Yeah, you know, or that, maybe if it was earlier, just, just well, the first thing that came along in your life that you were like, this is what I dig. I like this kind of music. Yeah. Well, I have two memories. First, Eddie Arnold came to t- town, and he, you know, country music was big in a small town like that, and I, I really liked that. Another thing was at our first house, 1816 Royal Palm, we had a garage apartment over the garage in a second story. And there were some tenants there. I don't remember their names. And I remember walking into their uh, upstairs there. And over the radio was this really different music to me. It was all twangy and everything. And it was the string guitar part of country music at the time. And it was just uh, different than what you heard on the radio a lot, but they had a different station. And I just, that always stuck with me that hearing a musical piece that was different and it caught my attention. I made no judgment or anything. I just thought, huh, that's different. Hmm. Um, uh, musical instruments? Did you or anyone um, around you play? I, nobody in my family really did musical instruments. I always wanted to, and when I was in probably um, junior high, I missed that, late elementary school or junior, and so I went out and bought myself a harmonica, and it had a little instruction sheet as sheet as to how you tuck your tongue into the uh, opening on the harmonica to get certain notes and gave you some simple things as, you know, as one, two, three, four, do three, three, four, and all, and I, I, I learned to play it enough for some songs that uh, that I liked, and that were easy to play. One in particular, I, I remember, and I, I guess I got this from church. We also walked to church to the Episcopal Church, St. Luke's, but it was "What a Friend You Have in Jesus," and I learned to sing it and play it on the harmonica. 
And um, there's a couple of other songs. I, I honestly can't remember them at this point. Do any choir singing? No. No? Okay. No, I was not a talented musician in <laughs> any way, voice or instrument or in any way. You're a harmonica player. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's get to your first song. Okay. Which was which would you like to start with? Wonderful World, All right. Sam Cooke. All right, well, so why is it your first song? I've always liked that song. And when you asked me the three thong- songs, that was actually the first one that came to my mind. I've just always liked it. It was early in the rock and roll period. I think 1960, so I would have actually been in college at the time, a sophomore in college. The The songs of those era, of that era, to me, as I look back on it, what was uh, unique about them, it, of course, it was a different style of music than our parents had had, and they were not used to it. Sure. But it, so it made it all the more exciting, I think, for us kids. But um, today's music is... Uh, professional at a level of technology that there are many more complications in putting something out. And my view when I look back to these, to the early songs like Wonderful World, it's like they just came right at you with emotion and they didn't disguise it. There was a emotion. They were open. The song was saying, here's who I am and where I am and here's the emotions I'm feeling. And Wonderful World kind of fits that, a little more sophisticated than a lot of them of that genre. It was just, it was a wonderful song. And I, I just loved the uh, kind of the cleverness of the of the lyric, throwing in, don't know much about history, don't know much geometry, and it, just the rhyme and putting it in with the, with the, the music. Actually, I learned so much in going back and thinking about these songs and then doing a little research, Googling a little. And I found out that uh, one of the producers of Wonderful World that worked with Sam Cooke a lot was Herb Alpert, Hmm. who came along for my listening purposes later. And I had no idea about this connection. And I guess Herb Alpert was big in the production. I just figured he was a... Latin American or Mexican uh, a, band leader. A whipped cream distributor. <laughs> right. Uh, whipped cream and other delights. And um, so when I saw Herb Albert, that really attracted my attention. I think he was actually from Brooklyn. And, and what I read about it indicated that Herb Albert helped Sam Cooke with the lyrics and adopting the right way to present the educational Hmm. part of it you know it's all about school yeah i'm i may not be an a student baby but i'm trying to be maybe i if i'm an a student baby i can win your love for me you can see why i say i'm not a musician (laughs) (laughs) but um but uh i read more about that 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 they were trying to link up education uh, together with music. So that was a conscious decision of the songwriting. I believe so. Huh. And and the one part of it was probably to encourage educational aspiration. But another thing I read was a comment that they also were uh, prevent, presenting that it's okay to have um, emotions and schooling. Hmm. To, to show your emotions and still be participating in the idea of school. I remember this song because I went through a phase where I listened to a lot of music from this era, and I never realized it was sort of like a public service announcement, kind of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's listen to it together. Uh, okay. Sam Cooke's Wonderful World. I love you, and I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. Richard and I just decided if we ever do karaoke together, we're going to do that. (laughs) It's a great song. And two things come up. You saw me uh, dancing. Dancing. I was doing the rumba. I thought you were doing something that had a name. (laughs) Later later in my life, 
Yeah. Well, after I was married, my wife and I took ballroom dancing lessons, uh-huh. and we really got into it. And one thing about it, the first two songs I realized are both rumbas. Uh-huh. And that's a great rumba song to dance to. Hmm. We, we, were t- we, we did it. We had a rumba song, too. I, we did um, Stand By Me. Oh, yeah. Oh, classic. Yeah, yeah. and that is a rumba. It's and much slower, obviously. <laughs> another one of that yeah. same period was yeah. uh, a rose in Spanish Harlem. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Under the Boardwalk. Another. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're all great rumba songs. When you when you learn to do the basic rumba step and, you know, do that with somebody, it just it's such a satisfying dancing uh, <laughs> experience. That's great. Um, I mentioned that I listened to it a lot. So like in the early 80s, I was involved in a youth group and we would go on these long trips and the youth leaders listened to nothing but this like time life, late 50s, early 60s thing. And, and I copied them all. So I listened to nothing but that for like a and, year. And here's the uh, here's the thing about I realized partway through the la ta 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 da That's the early period where they started coming, you know, said the gibberish of my older sister. Right. Well, they had their own uh, better than gibberish. They had their own little ways of uttering sounds that fit the music and were different. And, you know, you didn't have that before so much, I guess, except for those that jazz period, but not in this fashion that just makes it fun and exciting. Do you still listen to that kind of music? I do. Yeah. Last last night, I was thinking through all this, and I had my phone on, and I, I, I played this song in particular, and I was out in my driveway just off of our patio, <laughs> and it was just dark, fortunately, because I started dancing around. Doing <laughs> Were you playing it on the speaker? So, like, if somebody was walking their dog, they'd be like, oh, no, look, there's old Judge Starnes dancing. I had, it, <laughs> had it on my iPhone. But there, there's another really exciting thing about doing something like this and that it is that I didn't know about this movie before this. I chose the song. I was thinking about him. And then I started hearing about One Night in Miami. Huh. You familiar with that? I don't know. Richard? It's a, nope. it's a, it's a movie. I thought he was going to talk about Animal House. Just come out and it is uh, James Brown Muhammad uh-huh. Ali, but at oh, that, I did at hear like a headline about this, it. Yeah, I heard like a he, promo. He for was it. Cassius Clay at the time. Sam Cooke and um, uh, Sam Cooke, uh, Malcolm X, Malcolm X. Yeah, Cassius Clay and Jim. And Brown. Yeah. so they're there for an event. Malcolm X does a is in a boxing competition, and he won. Uh, and and then the four of them met at a hotel, and they. And I, I watched a good bit of it last night to get the general idea of what it is. It's really worth watching. And basically what it is, the four of them are trying to think back and kind of share and rationalize the black experience, um, the things that a black man could do, each of them men, to uh, help the black people, and be an outstanding person, they all had a different take on it to the extent that they had arguments hmm. and uh, almost got in a fight. And um, it was really it was really something. Uh, Malcolm Sam, Sam X. Cooks, Sam Cooke's played by Leslie Odom Jr., by Leslie the way. Leslie Odom Jr., <laughs> so. and he was excellent, and he actually did the singing. <clears throat> of course. And he did one... Well, the thing about Sam Cooke that they were criticizing, he says, you're playing for the white people. You're trying to make money off of the white people, and you're kind of ignoring the black people. Malcolm X was strong on that because he was kind of a separatist, as I remember. And he, I, I view him as, as taking the position, it's a competition, and we're separate, and we want to compete with these white people and do as well or better than them. Jim Brown, he was just a good guy that <laughs> goes forward with the football, and he made money from that. Um, it was, uh, it's really a good movie, and it made you think. But at one point, uh, they were they flash back, and Sam Cooke is before an audience. He had played before a lot of them that. Um, uh, where there would be mainly white people at a nightclub, and he'd try to play music that they would like, so this fits in with that theme. 
and the, the controversy, and um, and a lot of them get up and walk out. It was boring to them. Mm. They were all dressed up and everything. And so the next thing it shows is him at a concert. Practically everybody is black, crammed all in a large auditorium, and um, and he uh, he got up to the microphone and it didn't work. He turned to his band. The band said it didn't work. And they turned around and walked out. They said, no, come back. We got to do something. They said, no, the microphones don't work. They walked out. His wouldn't work. He tried to, you know, say something to the crowd. He couldn't really communicate. And then he stood up and he went, ah, ah. You know what's coming. Uh, yeah, I can, I can feel That's it. the sound of man <laughs> working on it. That's the sound of the man yeah. working, working on the a chain gang. Yeah. He got the crowd going, and he said, come on, come on. And they all did it without music or anything. Wow. He performed, and the point of that part in the movie is he performed for his people. He communicated with them, and he was successful. Hmm. And it was just an interesting take. I can't wait to see that movie. It's good. Um, was law always your horizon that you were aiming toward? Um, just inherently. My father was a lawyer. My older brother became a lawyer after I was uh, uh, well up in years. But my dad also had cattle out in the corkscrew area, and we had he leased uh, 12 square miles of land out there across from the country that's store. Big, that's a big piece of land. It was all raw land, and I I spent my weekends and sometimes a lot of time during the summer working down there on fences, herding the cattle, became a cowboy, and I love that. So when people would say, what do you want to be? I w as a little kid, I would say, I want to be a lawyer and a cattleman just like my father. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys still have and cattle? I, I still have cattle. <laughs> I, I had up until like a year and a half ago, a couple years uh, I still had 100 to 150 head. Wow. And uh, I leased uh, 360 acres from Collier County. Uh, I'm now down. I sold all those, uh, gave up the lease, um, and now I have uh, 11 head, eight cows and three calves. But uh, we go to our little place there at Corkscrew, and the cows come up at night and I feed them pellets and if I don't come right out with the pellets they're making this sound like moo <laughs> that's what everybody says they're saying Hugh come out here with those pellets you got and a, they won't shut up until I do it you got music playing anywhere out there at the farm or at the um, land or the yeah, you have a barn my, or something I'm sure uh, yeah my wife does furniture refinishing in the garage and she has music going constantly playing on what like what um, kind of machine she, plays it? Um, she has a, a little portable battery-operated speaker, and and then she has on her cell phone the music and a lot of uh, podcasts and okay. stuff like that. Sometimes she'll listen to a podcast, but she'll play any of the music that we love. Hmm. Um, so how long were you a lawyer before you were a judge? 13 years. What kind of law? I practiced a lot of real estate law. Uh, some probate uh, and some uh, construction cases. As I went along, I got into a little more complicated construction cases. Did you did um, did you pursue being a judge, or did it present itself to you? Well, actually, uh, one opportunity presented itself when somebody was going to retire. I think Judge Gerald and some people said, "You know, why don't you consider that?" I'd been a lawyer for about. 10, 11 years in, and I went down to the ranch to think about it and um, uh, overnight, and I wound up just kind of laying there and thinking, and I didn't know how to make a decision like that, <laughs> and so I didn't do it. And then Judge Shands retired about two or three years later, and I thought, this is the time, and my older brother Julian encouraged me to do it. So I applied and was appointed by Judge Askew at the time. And you were a judge for how long? 30 years as a full-time judge, and then uh, 12 years after that is what's called a senior judge where you come in on a part-time basis, 
fill in or they give you a, a certain docket to do a, a day or two a week. Music ever come up in any of the cases over the years? Gosh. Musicians, songs, anything like that? Um, I can't think of any, but actually there, there is one humorous thing. There was a judge in Miami, um, and I think I heard about this when, when I was a judge, and they called him the singing judge. When they would panel a jury, he would start singing to the jury. <laughs> really? And I think he actually got disciplined for it. Because Seems it like was that so would be yeah. disciplinable. <laughs> I mean, he had the best of intentions, I'm sure. He thought sure, he was but, on an NBC yeah, TV yeah. show. <laughs> I, so that that was the extent. No, I don't think I had any cases <laughs> involved. It was a captive audience. Yeah. Yes, right. Um, you must have known Judge Isaac Anderson. Very well. In um, fact, I spoke. A, a eulogy. Really? Oh, cool. He, uh, his son, Justin, has been on this show way back in I year one. I know Justin. And, and we hope to get Audrey on here one of these days. But the reason I bring him up is, is you must have known him when the whole rap thing happened. He kind of got into the national news because he ruled that two live crews lyrics were obscene and that kicked off a whole thing in the music industry. Were you aware of that? I really don't remember. Really? No. (laughs) Yeah, we talked about that during Justin's episode in the 80s when the rap music started coming out. There was one that was particularly vulgar, I guess you could say. And they, the news press was going to print their lyrics and then the that ended up in front of him and he ruled them obscene. And that kind of was the beginning of why CDs these days have parental warnings on them. Like like he was the big next or he was the, uh, the instigator for the very beginning of that whole thing. So anyway, I just want to bring him up. I, I remember him yes. from my early days he here. Was a, at he was a good friend. He's and a quick I miss him. Uh, the first Florida uh, Circuit judge to rule against the group's sexually explicit album was Lee Circuit Court Judge uh, Isaac Anderson <laughs> yeah. Jr., who found uh, as nasty as they want to be potentially obscene in a February 9th ruling. Yeah, and so the pushback on that became kind of a national story. And yeah. then on the back of that, yeah. the industry decided that they would... They would go ahead with the the obscenity label, which would then kind of give them shelter. And Justin could grow up and tell all his friends, "Yeah, that's my dad." <laughs> yeah, you can point it. Yeah, my dad did that sticker. Um, hey. You're gonna say something? Nope. Oh, okay. Um, uh, lost my train of thought. Oh, how has retirement suited you? Um, early on, retirement's a difficult thing to adjust to. You go to work every day um, as a judge or anything you do. And you have people around you, you know, you have some staff or you work for somebody and you have these relationships. And then all of a sudden that ends between one day and the next and you're off at home. There's no other people working around you. Your schedule uh, is completely open. And so it's a difficult adjustment because I find uh, I found, and I've talked with a lot of people who retired after I did, and they, they went through the same same process of adjustment. And it to me, I equate it a lot like uh, the housewife who's raising the children and thinks her job is not uh, honored or appreciated. And so what you're doing, you're doing stuff, maybe you'll do some stuff on the computer you run some errands, and at the end of the day, you think, what did I do today of any value? You haven't adjusted to thinking there are leisure time things you can do in others. And that lasted for um, probably less than a year. Because you can come back and be a senior judge, that helps a lot. And actually, very quickly, um, I got into, because I retired in 2008, so shortly after that, the mortgage crisis came mm. along, and so they were calling on the they needed all hands senior judges to there. come in, yeah. and I actually worked longer, harder hours for a period of a year or two doing that foreclosure mm-hmm. docket than I had as a regular judge. We would come in at 8.30 in the morning, supposed to go to noon. We'd have hundreds of cases. We that had was to like review. a four-year backlog in Lee County yeah. or something, right? And and then we'd we'd some go frequently to seven o'clock at night, and then we'd have to go in and sign all the accumulated orders on a a uh, a docket that had thousands of cases. It was it was a bear. Um, have you picked up a musical instrument maybe with your time now that you're retired? You know, or, no, or the harmonica I, again. N- 
No, uh, <laughs> not good enough at that to, to take for practice. it to be satisfying. <laughs> but I do, uh, on occasion, I'll just listen to music for a while and think. And with the wonder of of the internet and Google and being able to pull up not only songs but uh, but but the videos. And like uh, yesterday, I was just thinking of some other people and groups, and I brought up two songs that just really grabbed at me that are not on this list. One was The Righteous Brothers, Unchained Melody. Well, the video was just one of The Righteous Brothers. But I just thought, you know, this is so soulful. And when you see him, he's so direct. Like I said before, Mm -hmm. he's coming at you and giving his emotions. And it, it just was powerful. And then the other one was, I had looked at my songs and I noticed, well, there are three songs, they're all men. And I thought, but I love women singers and it just came out. So who who would be a favorite woman singer that I could say from back a ways? And the first one that came to my mind was a song for many reasons that really touches me, Martina McBride, Independence Day, Domestic Violence. And the wife burns down the house, and the little girl who they show in the video as she's singing, the little girl is taken into the county home. And uh, it just is such a powerful song uh, to illustrate domestic violence and the results. And Martina McBride does such a great job of belting this out with emotion. And so I thought that's one of my favorite women singers and songs. And you practiced uh, family law judge, right? Yes. So you dealt with cases like that. I did family law, and actually I I had a domestic violence docket as an experiment uh, that they asked me to do. And the only thing I did, and this was for a year or two, was I did all of the domestic violence injunctions, all of them, for the whole county. And then I on a court docket, um, I did the uh, criminal cases, the misdemeanor criminal cases, which were most of the domestic violence cases. I had that docket once a week, and I did the whole criminal docket. So I was very invested professionally in uh, solving problems and and doing things that are hopefully correct uh, in the domestic violence area. So that song had a special meaning for me personally. Wow. Um, let's go to your second song now. Okay. Um, La Soledad. This came later in life when I was in the dancing period. Pink Martini is the band. Um, and um, I became acquainted with them through the dancing. It's a great rumba. Did you resist dancing at first? I just got to ask. Uh, was this like something your, your wife was like, my, come on here, you're, wife, you're going to dance. There is a story there. <laughs> my wife and I and a couple of other couples went into a dance studio, Aki's dance studio, and we, we had a, a, a group lesson, which you never learn anything at a group lesson. But we met, we met Aki. And um, um, so, but nothing, everybody faded away and we didn't do anything. Then one day, a few months later, Judy came in and she said, well, I've signed up for 10 dance lessons. You can do it or not. It's up to you. But I've, I've signed up with a male instructor, Bruce Akioka. It didn't take me long to figure out, I think I'd better get to this program. <laughs> so I went in and uh, Natalie Grondin was a female uh, instructor, and I started taking lessons from her. And that's the way you learn to Understood. dance. Understood. Sure, that makes sense. You, yeah. you dance with a professional. But then Judy and I, as we learned, we then danced uh, together a lot. And we actually went danced at some competitions hmm. uh, together as amateurs. But I became familiar with uh, Pink Martini. Judy really picked it up at just so much variety such great music such a great band and then this one orchestra this one song just i always loved la soledad you want to play that now you bet pink martini i'm just gonna play 
Can you see why I love that? Mm-hmm. How, how often do you and your wife uh, still dance? Um, not as much now since we're not, you're always taking lessons, yeah. you know, and participating. And it's been several years now that, um, that uh, just life's, Oh, vagaries. I, I just meant I just meant at home. Yeah, you uh, ever do a little din- uh, the dining dining room dancing? We do that ever so often. <laughs> Usually, I uh, I suggest it. <laughs> I, I noticed uh, Judy I, is a great dancer. I mean, <laughs> she could be a professional, um, but uh, I she she doesn't enjoy it quite as much just improvising around. But we we love dancing, and it'll always be a part of our life. I was but, surprised to see here that Aki's is still, they're still open over there. Yeah, they, they have some <clears throat> protocol f- for surviving during the uh, epidemic, the pandemic. What do you mean after all this time? Like they're, they're still kicking around. Uh, they, they look, it looks good. I was, yeah. you know, we're not, they're not sponsors, but you know, if you want to get dance lessons and you live in this area, <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> it looks good. Yeah. Um, there, there are two particular things about uh, La Soledad though. Um, I knew it as a rumba song we learned through dancing. <clears throat> I knew it was in Spanish, and I always remembered that the first word, I know a little Spanish, and I didn't know, but I didn't know what it meant, but just the way he said it, Venistria me, and now, since I had to come here and I had to know something about the song, I thought, I better look at the translation. <laughs> I, I brought it up too. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> those are some great words. I read the translation, and it just it stunned me. Huh. That music had a meaning that I never. It had a seriousness tinging on sadness to it, but I never realized uh, the 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 true sadness of it. And so I got the translation. Can I read it? You do it, yes, sir. You came to me as poetry comes in song, and you showed me a new world of passion. You loved me without conditions or reason, while I, ignorant of the meaning of love, protected my heart. The sun has gone, and now I sing of you. This solitude consumes me. You came to me. I did not know how to love. All that is left is this song. I mean, I almost cried just yeah. reading it. it. It is so poignant. And, you know, particularly, I think, from men by tradition and unfortunately gender frequently don't know how to love. They don't know how to unleash their emotions and, you know, that's what's built 100,000 country songs, uh, the pain. And uh, this song brings that to the forefront. And it makes me remember one occasion with my wife before we were married. Judy, she was ready for commitment and marriage. No words like that were discussed. And I was, uh, even though I was, I was seven years older, I am seven years older, and um, I, I had caution, and um, I hadn't had a lot of serious relationships with other women, you know, in a deep sense. So I I grew up kind of, I was small, and I grew up slowly, uh, both physically and emotionally, and um, and of course, that was a period where men didn't express themselves a lot. I love you. Mm -hmm. And um, so Judy had a person with deep uh, inner sense of self-worth and character. And she decided, well, if he doesn't want me, then I'll leave. So she went with her mother and a sister up to Pennsylvania to a resort to work for the summer. And I actually, I took her to the airport and Tampa, and um, and I mean I was so clueless as to what was <laughs> happening, and for her this was it, and for me it was just like well she's leaving, and um, I don't don't know what I'm supposed to do or what, so she was gone a day, and I was on the phone with her, and we talked for forty five minutes, 
so I mean, I didn't let go. <laughs> and um, I remember one Sunday night after she had left, a couple of days later, George Carlin was on Sunday night TV, the comic. That was the most miserable I've ever been in my life. Mm. I missed her so much. And I read this song, and I think, there but for the grace of God could have gone me if I hadn't have had such a commitment. And I loved her, but like he says here, I, I don't know how to love. I don't know how to express it and all. And and I was uh, like, I was cautious. I was fearful of, you know, how, how do you know if something's going to work forever or anything? And, um, but it turned out right. We've been married for 53 years now, and we are as happy as two people could ever be, passionate for each other. And um, this was her suggestion. We've always been physically responsive to each other and, and, uh, having no trouble in sharing our feelings and our emotions. But she said, I want you to come in and kiss me goodnight. Mm. <laughs> so that is our ritual. When she goes to bed or whether it's I'm going to bed then or, or at the same time or not, I come up and kiss her goodnight. Do you, do you guys... Rather passionately. <laughs> and she responds. <laughs> and that just, we look at each other and we say, we are so damn lucky. Yeah, you know, how fortunate good. we are to have that type of satisfying, wonderful relationship. And we renew it every night. Uh, do y'all's musical tastes align? Are there any places where they don't? Well, she's not as much of a, yeah. With the kind of the back to the 50s, 60s type, you know, Hank Williams type country music. <laughs> when I play that, she goes to another room <laughs> or says, tone it down. But, but popular, main, all the music like this, we both share in it. And we love music and we love the same types of music. That's just one area where that's off on my shelf to the side. How many kids do you guys have? Three. Three. I thought so. I wanted to be sure. Um, did When they were coming up, was there any music that they brought into the house that you guys were like, uh-uh? Um, <laughs> no, but there's <laughs> one that we brought in that we had to stop using. Harry Nielsen. You're... You know who he is? I don't. I don't. Harry Nielsen. No. Nielsen Schmielsen. No. Was the album. He did Richard? Coconut... Uh, I, I don't think oh, so. Oh, keep going, keep going. Yeah. Um, look him up. You'll you'll I'm know some songs. I had the Coconut Man was one, and there there's some. He he's got videos that. Um, gosh, I wish I could think of one right now. But the only one I can think about is. Um, Without you, coconut. Yeah. Let the good times roll. Let the good. He he just he could do anything, but he had one song. I remember Let the Good Times Roll. Yeah. He had one song that Judy and I used to play, and we loved it. And our kids were little, you know, maybe four or five years old. Which one was it? <laughs> you're breaking my heart. You're tearing me apart. So f*** you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not familiar with that we, particular we song. We loved that song. It was so good. And we weren't thinking about the kids. <laughs> your kids came on so this show two, that might be one of their song well, stories two things cindy our oldest daughter she was probably five years old we heard her say so f you <laughs> singing the song i almost went in and broke the record player <laughs> but there's another schmielsen song listen to it sometime yeah. joy okay. is the name of it and he he is tr mimicking the uh prototype country song mm -hmm. oh richard you'd like i we met a girl named joy she took me on a joy ride and she said roy 
I'm going to make you my joy boy. <laughs> and he was so clever. He was so good. And we both loved Smielsen. And he had every type of singing you could do. Another one was um, Me and My Arrow. Huh. Another good, good. We'll have to. We'll post some. Yeah. We'll throughout the week. We like to share stuff on social media that it's links to this. We'll share yeah. some of these videos. But I'm so glad I asked that question. That was a and great answer. <laughs> me and my arrow was uh, the the theme song for uh, one of the animated things. And actually, they showed it. The arrow. The kid had an arrow on his head. And it was early Sesame Street type stuff oh, for okay. saying, Shane, hey, you know, some people are different." Don't make fun of them. Yeah. Huh. Um, have they, you? Sorry. They, yeah, they used it in uh, in The Simpsons. They did. Uh, I didn't. In, uh, me and my arrow. Yeah. Um, look, look further back. Sounds like it must have been something back in like. Uh, the, yeah. Um, it, let's see. The early days of Sesame Playhouse or whatever they call it. Um, they used it to sell the Plymouth Arrow. Oh, where is that? Uh, <laughs> um, nothing else in the trivia part of here. Probably have to do some search. In the pre-COVID days was seeing, you know, shows at Barbara B. Mann, uh, Broadway Palm, uh, orchestra shows. Was that part of your, you know, routine? Not a routine. We've we've been to each of those on occasion. The most recent one, ta-da, was uh, my niece, uh, Melinda Isley, who I know you know is in PR. She does a lot of work uh, for uh, Florida Southwest uh, University and... Barbara B. Mann, and uh, she got us tickets to a concert front row. What was it? Pink Martini. Oh, that must have been oh, so wow, good. wow, that was so great. And what I was going to say about La Soledad is that introductory piano uh-huh. is just the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And then he comes back with the piano music, and then and then the way they glide in to the, the deep violin Things and now that you know the words, you can see what they're doing. Yes, beautiful, wonderful love, but the guy doesn't know what to do, so then the violin and the sadness comes in. Hmm. Um, if you had to guess, what song do you think you've listened to the most in your life? Waylon and Willie. Babies don't let your, no, mothers don't let your babies grow up to be be cowboys. (laughs) Over the years, I probably listened to uh, Willie Nelson and Waylon James. That was their album, Um, probably more than anybody else. And, uh, and of course, all of Willie Nelson, a lot of it wasn't so country like Blue Skies. Right. Mm. When you were younger and you thought you might be a cowboy or a lawyer or both, which one did you think more that you would end up being? Because those are pretty disparate. He was going to yeah. be both. Yeah. Well, no, no, it was equal. <laughs> you were going to do both. It was equal. But the, here's the other thing about La Soledad that comes <laughs> in. You know, I told you about the ranch. Well, when I was in my middle teens, early middle teens, uh, and old enough to drive, um, uh, I'd go down and stay at a little shack we had at the ranch at Corkscrew. And, I mean, it was when we first got it there was no electricity we had electricity by this time but i'd cook on a wood stove and uh, i could bake stuff and cook stews i'd do fence work and stuff all day all by myself ride out it was three miles to the pasture we had and i'd ride my horse over or or go in a jeep station four-wheel drive jeep station wagon and work and that solitude of me on my own um solved a lot of problems for me because I was kind of serious and a lot of my friends, they were just off doing crazy stuff and driving around and doing nothing. And I was just a little more serious than that. And that was my refuge going down there. And I'd sometimes stay a week or two at a time. And I loved the cattle business. And I loved, you know, I had a whole series of cow horses and uh, you know some lived and some died and um, and I, I learned the cattle business and I was a pretty good cowboy and um, so the this song La Soledad before I knew the the exact lyrics I, I just the sound of it and then when I 
when I heard the lyrics, I realized that ties in somewhat with that period of my life, too. Hmm. I could understand the solitude. Um, Let's go to your third song. Amazing Grace. And that's one I've just always, it's touched me. I loved it. And I, I do respond emotionally to songs that are geared that way. And that was one that would always, you know, bring me close to tears, if not to tears, particularly when on a funeral or some solemn occasion, the bagpipes would march through playing it. I mean, that would just really, really get me. Um, And so I love the song. And of course, when Barack Obama broke into that at the South Carolina church, that was just, that was masterful. It was genuine and it brought out the song. And, um, and then you spring forward and hear Joe Biden's inauguration. Um, how could I not? Oh, Garth Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to tell you. <laughs> age creeps up just enough that even the most common things, and I glanced down at my notes, Garth Brooks singing it was so special. My recollection is there was no instrumental. He just sang it. And I understand that a lot of the his conservative country music people were really down on him for, you know, they were Trump people and for him to participate. So it took some fortitude and courage for him to do it. He, he did a masterful job, and it was just the perfect place and setting and the perfect person to say, we're all in this and we share so much um, sadness, but we appreciate the grace that we're were given and so that that's just a really great song that I've always loved. When you were watching the inauguration, did you see that he was going to be singing it or did it just all of a sudden he came walking out in his cowboy I, hat? I didn't know it until that day and I'm I'm sure I'm I'm not even sure I knew about it until oh, I didn't because actually I went to the bathroom when the song was starting and I was thinking who is that singing Amazing Grace? And I thought of some other male singers that it sounded like, and I walked out, and I saw it was Garth Brooks in his cowboy hat. And I thought, man, that is powerful. That is great. And I just, I love that song anyway. I love the fact that he was using it, and the inauguration committee was using it as a unifying, powerful, emotional force. Well, let's listen to it together. I haven't heard it since that day. This is Garth Brooks performing Amazing Grace at the inauguration of President Joe Biden. If I can ask you to sing this last verse with me, not just the people here, but the people at home, at work, as one, united. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I'd forgotten the bugle introduction. He did <laughs> sing it, and that made it all the more yeah. powerful. Um, I read up on this song. You know, I knew that even after Garth. Uh, sung it there. I knew it as they used to refer to it as a Negro spiritual, a church spiritual from the black church. And that's the way I always knew the song. And so I thought it arose from the slavery period and from the church uh, influence and I must persevere. And then I read the history and it was written and there's some dispute about who originally wrote it and how it was revised, but basically the what seems to be the correct story is it was written in the late 1700s by a British man, James Newton, who was a slave trader. 
Mm. And he actually ran one of the slave boats he had and ran several trips. And here the story kind of get mushy a little bit as to what actually happened. But over a period of years, he realized the wrong he had done. He got out of the slave trade. He still did some in the background on land uh, from what the stories show, but gradually moved further and further away. And then at some point in the late 1700s or early 1800s, he, he wrote, or if it was out in some fashion revised, but he, he basically wrote this hymn, which seems to be about him and his process because eventually, way eventually though, eventually he became an abolitionist. And um, it's a pretty powerful story Heck when yeah. you think about it. And so instead of it arising from the slaves as their fortitude, it's his apologist song yes. as a slave trader. And, you know, he, he actually became a... Uh, I think a Presbyterian minister at some point. So it's just a strange confluence of events and circumstances that produces a song that appears at the inauguration of a president. And it, it's what I remembered. Garth Brooks said, United. And that I just, I admire him so much for doing the song and how he sang it, just bare bones. Sometimes that's the most beautiful way to do a piece of piece of music, and and he got he, done and he he, did it. he handed that microphone to somebody and he just walked off and yeah. just went and got back on his horse. It looked like yeah. he's not like I'm not looking for applause <laughs> yeah. or anything. This is me. This is my song. I believe this is right for me to do it. Last Friday, sitting, tip of the hat. So long. <laughs> last Friday, sitting in that chair, our guest Rose Edie Govan, who spent thirty-five. Do you know Rose? I, I know the the uh, the Edies. Okay. Um, well, her son Jarrett had come on yes. this show. He recommended her, and her third song was the Aretha Franklin version of "Amazing Grace" that was performed live with a with a choir for an album back in '72. So we've yeah. got back-to-back -back Amazing Graces. Yes. Yes. And actually, I wanted to mention to you, just because I know you said how much you love to hear it, how much you love to listen to that song. Back when they recorded that live performance um, of Aretha Franklin doing it, they, they filmed it, too. And they meant to release it as a, as a concert movie, but the, the sound sync was off. Oh, no, And they, it, it kind of, it, they had failed to do it correctly, so they, had, they vaulted it. And a year ago, two year, a year ago, I think it got released finally. They, like they they fixed it, and so you can watch. I want to do that. <laughs> the entire concert from that church. It's it's good. You know, and and you speak of of the glitches. I was when I was listening here. I was listening carefully because it was on the TV in the room and noise outside right. when I heard him sing that before. So isolating it. I swear to God, I don't know if it's a technical glitch, but at different points in that. Hear this big, strong Garth Brooks. I could hear some emotion in there about yeah. to break through, just on the verge, just slightly, and that's probably one of the reasons he he just walked away. Yeah, can you imagine how intense that must be? Yeah. Um, okay, we're gonna do some silliness now. If a bartender was making a drink called the Hugh Starnes, what would it be? Bartender said, "Son, what'll it be?" I said, I'll have a shot of that redhead looking back at me. My wife used to be a redhead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Brooks and Dunn. Yeah. Um, Boot scooting booty. Are we going to let him off with that, Richard? No. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a good, no, okay. I love that. That's a heck of I'd an have, answer. I'd have to say, I'll have a glass of Chardonnay. Okay. So you have two, you have two jobs. You have, to, you have to give it an accent to make it. Like yours, oh. and then and then second, you got to name it. Sir, will you give me a Houdinay to go? A Houdinay <laughs> in a in, in a, a to go cup. In a to go cup. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, okay, if you were a championship wrestler, what song would you enter the arena on? Oh, enter the arena. Yeah, what would be your like the pump up music? Chariots of fire. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really easy. good. Yeah. That's really good. Uh, do you have any TV theme songs that you would sing with us if we could pull it up on YouTube? 
that uh-huh. you remember the words to? Yeah, that, yeah the, it, uh, a song you know all the words to or close enough that you all like to sing. Shoot. There are some, but I'm, I'm having trouble coming up with one. If you all want to help me. I don't know. you got to decide. Um, we can move on if something rattles around and we can come back. Yeah. Okay. We'll keep thinking about that with that one little part of your brain. Um, have you ever done karaoke? No. No? Maybe one time or something. Everybody else always gets there before me. And you're happy to be on the sidelines. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate. Um, do you have a favorite band of all time? Favorite musician? Somebody who just, you know, over your life has stuck around the most? I'm coming up short. Okay. How about Green Acres? <laughs> Green Acres is the place for me. Okay, hold on. Save it, save it. It's about all I can think of. Oh, okay. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll, leave you, we'll leave you off with that. <laughs> um, what would your 14-year-old self at Fort Myers High or Fort Myers uh, Junior High or whatever it was at that point, think of who you are today in life, in the world, what you've done, et cetera? Hold it. You said, what would my 14-year-old? Yep. If you can time travel back to your 14-year-old self, but he can oh, see you here today. Oh, my 14-year-old self. Yes. I missed the self. My 14-year-old self would have never believed, okay, I'm going to use a word that I hate to use, but what a uh, liberal thinker I was. Because at 14, I was provincial, Fort Myers, segregated city, segregated high school. You went to to the football game, seated in the stands. They played Dixie, or if it came over the intercom, the, people, the guys around you said, hey, stand up for Dixie, stand up for Dixie. The 14-year-old, I'll be more precise, the 14-year-old would have never understood or known anything about the history of Dixie. Uh, the 14-year-old would have probably around that time, started reading some uh, Civil War novels uh, that were in the library in the upstairs of Fort Myers High. And they were all written from the South Side. So all the heroes were uh, J.W.B. Stewart, the Cavalry Man, Stonewall Jackson, um, people like that. And that 14-year-old could have never understood that when you understood that the way those books were written idolized people that were harmful to our nation, they were doing things that have been smoothed over and re-engineered to make it sound like they're such wonderful people. And in some ways they had skills and, and all, but uh, those generals, particularly Lee, um, they whipped people. They separated families. They treated people horribly. And that's been, to the 14-year-old in Fort Myers, you never know anything about that. Hmm. And it was wrong, and General Lee's portrait should not be sitting in the Lee County chambers above the chambers who happened to be sitting, so I have a little gritty emotion, who happened to be sitting in the same place where I sat for years as a circuit judge trying to mete out justice without bias and fair, and they're sitting there with a guy that tried to secede from the union. Um, we've pretty much reached the end of the show. Great. Did enough emotion come across Great there? answer on the 14-year-old <laughs> self, by yeah. the way. Richard? You want the hard question? I want the hard question. Okay. Hugh, you brought us three songs today, and now you have to, between those three songs, you got to divvy them up in a certain way. So I'm going to give you three options, one for each. One of the songs is a song that you guarantee future generations will get to hear. They'll always have it. This One of the songs, it's the only song you get to listen to for the rest of your life. You can't listen to any other music ever. One of the songs you're going to erase from having ever existed and the retroactive changes, you know, that go along with that. Go. (laughs) I would say Amazing Grace will last forever. La Soledad may, but it it doesn't have the same uh, power of uh, 
universality. So I'd have to say Amazing Grace is one for the history books, and it's been done in such a way that it would. And I would say the one that, this is really hard, but I'm going to say the one that should disappear should be Wonderful World, not because it isn't a great song, Mm -hmm. not because Sam Cooke isn't a wonderful person and a great singer, but because he should never have had to do One Night in Miami. And it arose from that period when Wonderful World was written. And the Wonderful World was sung by a black man in a way to say, look, uh, we care about education too. That's probably the underlying theme that Herb Alpert and Sam Cooke were trying to sell. The necessity of selling that theme should disappear. Hmm. Love that. And, um, you know, whenever you turn on any musical device for the rest of your life, you and your wife could dance to Pink Martini. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it'll be the That'd only be thing that comes out. <laughs> That's right. That's a really good answer. Thanks. Um, okay. Well, it is time for you to recommend three people that you'll share this with that you think we should try to get on. This was hard, too. One of them you may have already had. But I'm actually, what I thought of is, you know, there are times you're always thinking of somebody else out there. And I think, you know, nobody has a better love for music than my wife, Judy. Okay. And I hope she'll do it. Okay. Um, The same thing I want to say in a different way for my brother-in-law, my sister Margie's husband, Gene Belodi. He was a... Presbyterian minister, retired, and he, he's been a baseball player, and he's a real deep thinker, and he, he's got class. Okay. And the third one is somebody I really love that actually got me on here today, and that's Melinda Isley. Okay. Has we, she ever done it? No, she hasn't. Melinda? Melinda, you're doing it. You, it's up to you. <laughs> Carry on the family tradition. Uh, well, thank you so much. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? We really appreciate having you. I just want to thank you all for having this because I knew I'd have to do some research and, and think, but I never dreamed that it would take me so far uh, emotionally um, and in, in thinking through all this, and it's been a wonderful thing. Thank you so much. Okay. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer and host. Chris Duffus is our executive producer. And our theme song was made by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. This week's parting tune, we're kind of breaking the rules just a bit. One of our bylaws is that guests get just three songs, no more. When Hughes sent me his songs, he added that if time permits, he would love to talk about and maybe play some of the song Bubba Shot the Jukebox by Mark Chestnut, because he said it had a clever script. Well, that didn't happen during the recording, but I checked it out, and man, talk about a song with a story and a song story built right into it. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. These are so hard. You guys didn't tell me it was going to be like this. Um, <laughs> favorite band of all time. We might this, use that for the soundbite. Like you guys didn't. This is not fair.